The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome to the program, everybody. You're watching Squawk Box. We are live from London and, of course, Zurich. Here are your headlines this hour. Global bank stocks enjoy a relief rally on the back of UBS's takeover of Credit Suisse. But First Republic plunges yet again as J.P. Morgan's CEO, Jamie Dimon, reportedly leads efforts to stabilise the beleaguered lender. And Credit Suisse bondholders consider legal action after the Swiss government effectively wipes out all bondholders of 81 debt, while UBS's credit outlook gets cut to negative by, by Moody's and S&P. Uh, the French government narrowly survives a no-confidence vote, allowing it to force through contentious pension reforms. The Prime Minister, Elizabeth Bourne, tells lawmakers the programme is crucial for France's economic well-being. Rejecting this compromise would mean financing our pensions with debt and dangerously weakening our pay-as-you-go system. Amazon slashes another 9,000 jobs, reducing its total headcount by almost 10% in just the last few months, as CEO Andy Jassy cites shifting priorities and an uncertain economic outlook. So, welcome to the program uh, this uh, Tuesday morning. Uh, I guess we should focus on the markets and how the banks are feeling. Yeah, true Good morning and welcome back. And uh, you. did you pass the baton at Heathrow or was it Zurich Airport? I think I think we passed in the air. <laughs> That's well, uh, well, welcome back. Anyway, terrific coverage in Zurich. Look, look, is this crisis over? Um, it depends who you talk to. Was it ever a crisis of the scale of 2008 to 2010? It depends who you speak to. Are banking stocks now so cheap and, uh, because the crisis has been averted at the moment on both sides of the Atlantic? It depends who you speak to. You speak to someone like Terry Smith, who's a very well-known investor on this side of the Atlantic, and you look at his copy in the FT today, he won't touch banks with a barge pole because he says the return on equity you get for the risks you have out there and your assets versus your liabilities, it's just not worth it. He said you can get far better returns on consumer staples. It's a really good article in the FT today. I'd have a look at it. And yet... And yet, the rally off the lows of some of these stocks yesterday was extraordinary. We're talking about a, a 30% round trip in some cases. Down 15, then up 15 again. Uh, 10%, down 5% and up again. So you had really uh, annual profits if you timed it well yesterday. But it was all about being brave when the shares were coming off aggressively at the start of trading. So you may think it's all over. Um, not if you look at this. First Republic is still under vast amount of pressure. One of my colleagues the other day last week said to me, oh, what a great vote of confidence, the, the $30 billion uh, deposited by the other uh, big systemically important banks. What a great vote of confidence in First Republic. I was like, no, what it means is they're really worried about it infecting them. So hence, they're trying to put money in First Republic to, to shore up the position. But it's not happening yet, is it? Shares in First Republic plummeted yesterday, closing down nearly 50%, 50%. 
Volatile trading session, I think that goes without saying, in which the stock was halted several times. The accelerating slide was on the back of an S&P downgrade, a second one, I believe it, which came despite a $30 billion deposit lifeline announced, as I mentioned, by 11 major US banks last week. Anyone who looked at that and said, oh, that's the end of the crisis, it was, was crazy, as we tried to say to you at the time. As Jeff in Zurich was saying, as Karen, me and Juliana were saying here, if, if, you, if you're another bank and you're putting all this money there, you're not worried about the other bank, you're worried about it infecting you. You're trying to create a fire break, a moat, pull up the drawbridge. It didn't happen. JP Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon is reportedly leading a fresh round of talks with Wall Street executives on a new plan. A uh, new plan to stabilize First Republic. The Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times have reported major US banks are considering making investments in the embattled lender, such as converting some or all of the $30 billion in deposits made last week into a capital infusion. Industry leaders are expected to discuss the new plan on the sidelines of the prearranged meeting in Washington today. Meanwhile, CNBC has learned that JP Morgan is advising First Republic on strategic alternatives, including a capital raise or possible sale of the bank. Let's have a quick look at these very briefly for you. So look, I mean, we had a rally off our lows across Europe yesterday, a mighty rally, there was no doubt about it. But if you look at the five-day performance of most of these European banks, you'll struggle to find one that's up over that period. In fact, most are considerably lower as well. So First Republic, we talked about that, down nearly 50%. That aside, Goldman's, Morgan's, JP Morgan, all up. Mild declines for Wells and Bank of America as well. Let's have a look at the industry. I'll go through this quickly. We've got a massive show for you today. So many elements to it as well. Um, the Dow was up 1.2%. The Nasdaq up four tenths of 1%. Asian indices, let's have a look at them. Ex-Japan as well. And by and large, solid performances in the green to the upside. The European close yesterday. Well, it was a big rally off the lows. Again, we were all down 1% plus on many of these indices at the start of trading. 72 handle at one point on the FTSE. Uh, 74.03. Over in France, we talked about the uh, Elizabeth Bourne. What a, what, a, what a strong parliamentarian that lady is as well. Uh, 7,013 up 1%. 0.3% there, and the SMI in the round, uh, mild relief. I mean, look at that, it's only up 0.3 of 1%. The banking closed. Let's have a look at the uh, bank stock 600. There you go, this is, this is a great case in point. Mild recovery, mild recovery in European banks, mild recovery, plummet. And then look, there's the last few days trading sessions. It really done very little. In fact, you're back down to near your lows of the year on this sector with all the gains wiped out. So um, we're going to talk a lot about Cocos, I reckon. Yes, yes. Well, well, this is a fascinating story, obviously, and I think there are so many aspects to it that we need to investigate. And I think we can do something that the mainstream media can't do, which is actually... Well, we understand what guilt's are. <laughs> exactly. Dig into, the, <laughs> dig into the heart of this story and actually the relationship actually between explain. the underlying, the coupon and the yield. Absolutely. Uh, so Credit Suisse uh, 81 bondholders are considering legal action after the state or orchestrated takeover by UBS specified that holders of Credit Suisse's additional tier one bonds would be completely written down. Under the deal, holders of 81 bonds will get nothing shareholders who usually rank below bondholders in terms of who gets paid out when a bank or company collapses will receive 3.23 billion dollars uh, but ultimately they took a 59 percent haircut on the friday close uh, goldman sachs says the move to wipe out credit Suisse's 81 bonds could reduce demand for those instruments in the long term as investors quote reassess the risk reward 81 bonds issued by other european banks 
fell sharply on Monday. Let's get to Germana, who is in Zurich. Um, Germana, good morning to you. Look, before, before um, they all get on their high horse and start beating their chest about this, let, let's just remind the audience what these are. These are high-yielding instruments largely issued by investment-grade companies. So you get a very high return, ultimately, for what most perceive as a relatively low risk. I understand how the Credit Suisse story has now shifted the narrative, but isn't everybody telling us this is an idiosyncratic case that won't be repeated? Well, Jeff, uh, let's just unpack a couple of things that you said there. First of all, I think the market action yesterday, as Steve alluded to earlier, was pretty telling in that by the end of the day, we actually saw the stocks bank index uh, trade positive. So initially, the reaction to the news Monday morning was very, very negative. You had deep down trade for many of these stocks. A lot of the credit bonds came under pressure. Spreads are widening. But by the end of the day, things had turned around, which tells you at least in terms of one day's price action, which is only one day, the market is saying, well, maybe this is an idiosyncratic case, as you highlighted. But more broadly speaking, I think the analyst and the investment community had two issues with the way the deal was constructed in terms of its terms. The first, uh, which we also need to talk about, is the fact that UBS shareholders weren't actually consulted about the terms of the deal. So that's something to watch out for. There is going to be an AGM on April the 5th, something to put in your calendars as far as UBS shareholders are concerned. The second, of course, is what has happened with the 81 bond fallout. So let me just spend a moment here to explain to some viewers who may not be familiar with 81 bonds and how they're supposed to work. And you touched on that. Essentially what they're called is COCOs, contingent convertible bonds. And these are a new type of instruments that banks started issuing post the GFC as a means of boosting uh, their potential capital should they start moving under uh, a path of insolvency or towards a path of insolvency. They're essentially perpetual bonds that pay a fixed coupon, but not bonds because they have the option of either being written off entirely or converted to equity should the capital level of a bank go under a certain level. That's set by Basel. It's 7% in the case of Swiss and UK banks, about 5.125% in the case of European banks. Now, what happened? with the Credit Suisse takeover is the regulators deemed that they would still give a payout to common equity shareholders. So they still got something. In total, they got more than $3 billion. But the owners of the bonds, these 81 bonds, got nothing. And many people view that as a breach of the typical hierarchy, which is where bondholders uh, have seniority over common equity shareholders with the deal that was constructed over the weekend through the all into jeopardy. So we walked in on Monday, Monday morning and many holders of other 81 bonds out there, the market is about $250 billion in size, are saying, well, if this is the precedent, this isn't a good sign at all because it means that we don't enjoy the senior status that we thought we would enjoy. Now, what I thought was really telling is that by around midday, you had the ECB and you have the Bank of England both put out statements saying, actually, just to remind people, we will be respecting the senior status of these uh, cocoa bonds, these 81 bonds versus common equities. Uh, and that's the way we do things over here, which does tell you that the Swiss situation is a very particular one. And that is why we're hearing overnight that there are um, legal cases that are being considered. One thing I would just mention is what many people are alluding to is if you actually go and read the bond 
wording, the wording of the dog. There is a line there that I think is important. FINMA may not be required to follow an order of priority, which means, among other things, that the notes could be cancelled in whole or in part prior to the cancellation of any or all of CSG's equity capital. And that is the out that they're going to be using there. So yes, there may be many legal cases, but as far as the broader ramifications are concerned, it is reassuring to some of the 81 bondholders that ECB and the Bank of England did come out with that statement yesterday. Indeed, uh, given the pricing reaction we saw on some of those cocos. Thank you very much for that, Jamana. Well, global borrowing via enhanced seven-day dollar swaps was minimal on Monday after the U.S. Federal Reserve announced it would offer daily currency swaps instead of weekly. The joint effort from top central banks was meant to ease funding stress and boost global cash flow amid ongoing turmoil in the banking sector. But demand was negligible, with two Swiss banks borrowing $101 million and one Eurozone bank borrowing $5 million, while no banks in Japan or the UK borrowed anything. The Fed meeting kicks off today with the US central bank facing one of its toughest decisions in years amid stubbornly high inflation and a lingering banking crisis. While some investors and industry leaders are calling for a pause in rate hikes, the CME's FedWatch tool shows markets are currently pricing in more than 70% chance that the Fed will raise its benchmark rate by 25 basis points. Let's get to Carl Weinberg, who is Chief Economist and Managing Director, High Frequency Economics. Carl, welcome back to the show. The dust has yet to settle on this banking crisis. We've seen it leap from one bank, from SVB, to another bank, uh, uh, stateside, to what we're now seeing in Europe around Credit Suisse, and even to the bond market, to AT1s. What does the Fed do in this context, given concerns around financial stability? Hi, well, good morning, Karen. I think the Fed does what the ECB did, which makes a very, very clear statement that the FOMC's mandate is inflation. And as the ECB led off with its statement last week when it announced its 50 basis point rate hike, inflation is too high. It's forecasted to remain too high for too long, and therefore interest rates have to go up. So I'm expecting a rate hike from the Fed as previously. I'm expecting 25 basis points, which is where they are in terms of their speed. I'm expecting a strong commitment to price stability. There are other parts of the Fed that are mandated with supervising the banks and, and pe maintaining uh, banking sector stability. They have their own tools, their own job to do. The FOMC will do its job. Some of this debate goes back to the original one as to whether we've been in this cheap money environment for way too long and whether that's been a trigger for some of the, the current ills that we're seeing in the banking system now, that the lack of ability for banks to handle their maturity risk profile, that uh, many banks were eking out gains when effectively they should have been managing that risk. What do you make of that debate that perhaps it is the central banks themselves that have been the trigger for this crisis? Well, for sure, Karen, interest rates have been uh, too low for too long. We haven't had positive real interest rates in the U.S., in Europe, or the U.K. since the financial crisis, and that's obviously uh, unhealthy. What we've seen, though, in the banks that have failed in the United States have been specific circumstances that, that run back to, uh, in some cases, just bad banking, making bets on treasury uh, bonds rather than uh, on uh, core lending, on concentrating lending in a specific class of customers in a specific industry when that industry goes sour. You know, it's basically been bad banking that's brought down uh, the three banks on the U.S. side. And I think we might see more banks in trouble if we see some runs on deposits at smaller institutions. But I'm not expecting a lot of that. And uh, I'm thinking that uh, the worst of the crisis is behind us at this point.
Carl, let, let me come back to you on the comment that you made initially here where you appeared to separate the banking story from the decision the Fed needs to take about inflation. And let me push back on that for a moment here because surely if the Fed's been about destroying demand, anything that encourages the loan officers to be more conservative in lending practices is going to be doing the Fed's job because it, it will restrict the amount of credit available to the real economy. It will tighten up financial conditions without the Fed having to lift interest rates, won't it? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, this this banking, uh, I'll call it anxiety rather than a crisis, uh, if it leads to a Minsky moment in lending, and if it leads to some institutions to have to draw back on loans, it's doing exactly what the Fed set out to do when it started raising interest rates and when it started uh, selling assets from its portfolio. But look, raising interest rates didn't make a big difference to consumers or businesses when cash balances are so high after the stimulus programs during the pandemic. And uh, drawing back uh, reserves from the banking system with QT, that didn't make a difference to lending either because the system was over-reserved. But now we have this Minsky moment and we have some banks losing deposits with liquidity issues. Uh, we're going to see, I think, the Fed, I wouldn't say welcome what's going on, but certainly appreciate the benefits to their objectives, which has to be, at the end of the day, if they're going to bring inflation down with monetary policy, it has to be to at least slow the economy substantially if not to cause a recession. Uh, Carl, very good morning to you. I've been loving for a start the, the copy that uh, Rubila Faruqi, your US chief economist, has been sending us. So thank you very much indeed for that. And, and something very logical in there that doesn't seem to me to be a Minsky moment, but seems to be more of a, a drip feed of a problem rather than a sudden withdrawal of credit. And this is the fact that Rubila has been talking about the fact that if you say, I mean, I'll use my example of say, let's say there's a million dollars on deposit at First Republic and suddenly that depositor says, no, I'm going to put it, um, at, I don't know, Citigroup or JP Morgan. That money isn't necessarily the same money available then to be lent out again, because um, the banks that take on will become more cautious uh, and more conservative in their lending criteria. So the crisis might not necessarily lose any money for depositors in the net, but actually where that money is put and then how that money is used creates actually tighter credit conditions. That's basically the argument, isn't it? Absolutely, Steve. And we have to remember that the job of the bank regulators is to protect the public, not the shareholders. So while I feel bad about all of these COCOs and AT1s who are losing their money, right? this is what the system is designed to do. People who invested in banks put money at risk, and with that risk comes risk, all right, that things could go bad. A depositor who puts money in a bank expects that money to remain available, expects the bank to be a public utility, if you will, that holds their money safely and keeps it available. To the, to the extent that the regulator's job is to protect the depositors first, we have 100% perfect gold star for the execution that we saw in the United States, at least, and probably in the case of First Boston of Credit Suisse when it's all said and done. The depositors are safe. The investors lost money. Main Street is protected. Wall Street took the risk, lost in this particular case. It's, it, to me, this is a, a perfect example of regulation. And I'll add one more thing, Steve, to that, 
All right. What did people expect would happen when the Fed started tightening monetary conditions or the Bank of England or the ECB? All right. The intent here, what that tightening of monetary conditions means is that some businesses are going to suffer and some of the financial institutions are going to suffer from that also, from the dislocations that are caused by that. So at the end of the day, you know, this is what we're getting, what we should have expected all along, which is that businesses are failing and that's helping to slow the economy. And and that's what brings aggregate demand back into line with aggregate supply. Carl, I, 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 I find myself in total accord and completely understand what you're saying. So you're, I must be learning. But, but the point being here is, isn't this going to create the recession that people thought might not happen and we might get some Goldilocks bumping along? If we've got everything we had originally with the tightening of the Fed and another 25 base points, plus tightening in the banking sector for their own reasons, as well as the tightening rate, then, then surely this creates another straw on the camel's back that is a, a problem for the U.S. economy. Well, of course, it's a problem for the U.S. economy. You know, banks failing aren't good, a loss of confidence or anxiety about the banking system, that's not good. A Minsky moment in lending, that's not good, all right? And what Jay Powell is probably going to say tomorrow and what Andrew Bailey is almost certainly going to say the next day is that there's a narrow path that still exists for a soft landing, but it is a narrow path and it becomes a little bit narrower because of this anxiety and the risk of recession has to be considered higher. But it's not as short in the case of the United States as it is in Britain for other reasons. But in the United States, we still have a pretty rigorous, vig vigorous economy. We have, look at those retail sales numbers. We're looking for an increase in housing market activity and figures that are coming out today. We look at the job market and it's tight as a drum. We're not creating unemployment. There are a lot of really strong positive signs about the U.S. economy, which suggests that it may be able to power through this storm of policy and banking sector anxiety and still continue to grow, in which case we should expect a growth recession where the growth rate slows to the point where the economy doesn't create jobs as fast as the labor market is growing, but it still continues to grow. But again, a very narrow path, and I'll bet you 10 cents we hear those words from Fed Chair Powell and Andrew Belly in the next two days. Carl, thank you very much for joining us this morning. Carl Weinberg with us, Chief Economist and Managing Director, High Frequency Economics. JP Morgan says we could be facing a so-called Minsky moment with credit conditions tightening in the wake of the banking turmoil. You can check out CNBC Pro for the full story. That's me. Right. Coming up on the show. Oh, wow. This is a big story, isn't it? The French government narrowly survives a no-confidence vote in Parliament. We are live in Paris next. Oh, the podcast, Karen. Well, for more on the uh, biggest losers from the shotgun sale of Credit Suisse, you can check out the Scorebox podcast. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com.
The Chinese President Xi Jinping has praised the Russian leader Vladimir Putin. You remember Putin, he's the one who the ICC are calling a war criminal. Anyway, he's uh, praised him for strong leadership whilst visiting his Russian counterpart in Moscow. Uh, the meeting is the first part of Xi's three-day state visit to Russia as the Allies look to deepen economic and political ties. Xi's trip, his first since securing a historic third term, comes after the International Criminal Court, here we go, issued an arrest warrant last Friday, accusing Putin of war crimes for allegedly deporting children from Ukraine. Well, while uh, Xi is in Russia, the Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Koshida is visiting Ukrainian President uh, Volodymyr Zelensky today. State media showed Koshida boarding a train at the Polish border town of Shemzhol. Koshida is expected to discuss his support for Ukraine and then hold talks with his Polish counterpart before returning to Japan on Thursday. The French government has narrowly survived a no-confidence vote in Parliament over controversial pension reforms. 278 French lawmakers voted in favour of the motion, which was nine votes short of the majority needed. The new pension legislation, which is now considered adopted, sparked fresh protests in Paris last night. Let's get out to Charlotte for more. Charlotte, there's still another hurdle to, to cross when it comes to review by the Constitutional Council. But if uh, we see that hurdle cleared, what does it mean in terms of the adoption of this legislation around pension reform and indeed the protests we're still seeing? Well, it was very, very tight and it was much tighter than expected. As you said, 278 MPs supported that vote of no confidence or just nine short uh, to, to topple the prime minister. So, um, as you said, we've seen tensions continue, pockets of violence last night because now in the sense that pension reform is uh, um, law. So um, the question is where we go from now. But from what we heard from the prime minister yesterday, Elizabeth Bond has spoke to MPs, to MPs uh, in the chamber just before the vote. She said it was essential to go through with that pension reform. Take a listen. Rejecting this compromise would mean financing our pensions with debt and dangerously weakening our pay-as-you-go system. Rejecting this compromise would mean depriving 1.8 million modest pensioners of an increase in their pensions from the start of the school year, an average increase of 600 euros per year. So the Prime Minister was safe after that vote, but the question is for how long? Because there's really the sense, especially because the vote was so tight, that probably we should expect a reshuffle, not straight away, but probably before the summer and the Prime Minister uh, leaving, basically acting as a fuse. That's what we say in France, the Prime Minister is a fuse for the President. And so he might want to start a new chapter with potentially a new government in place. But this is not a question just yet. So where we go from now, there's still a big strike and protest called for Thursday. The unions say we, they will continue with their action very toughly. Uh, we don't know how, if, whether they're going to fizzle out or if it's continue like that. But one thing uh, is important is that the, uh, the president, Emmanuel Macron, will speak, will do an interview tomorrow at lunchtime. And this will be really key on what the movement looks like next and whether he manages to appease the tensions in the country or whether things uh, continue to get tougher and tougher. And for example, we start to see some fuel shortages in the country, particularly in the south of France, because the refineries have been blocked for, so, for so, such a long time, rubbish keep piling up in the street, etc., etc. So the next few days will be absolutely essential of what happens next with this pension reform that now is actually considered law. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.